0: Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS.
1: Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more.
0: Hello, welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and if you were listening to the last edition where we talked about bias we realized that there was so much to discuss. that such a deep topic. It needs lots of coverage. We elected to come back for part two. And thanks to the miracle of modern podcastology, we've managed to get all of our guests back into the same room weeks after we met for the first time. They're all laughing on the screen because, of course, we just stopped and started again, but never mind. Anyway, let's get on with the show. And, of course, to help us get into this is co-host Hillary Gates.
1: Thanks, Rob. We are excited to continue this discussion because one of the things uh, that became clear is that while we were talking about educators crafting lessons and activities and growth for their students in the classroom, we also needed to talk about how the workforce in EMS suffers from a diversity problem and how leaders and chiefs and employers can really think about ways to make the workforce reflect what our patients look like. So... Just to reintroduce our guests who are with us in part one, we have Katie O'Connor and Sahej Kalsa. Katie, can you tell us about yourself? Hi, I'm Katie. I'm a
2: paramedic based in Los Angeles, and I'm currently working with the Los Angeles EMS Agency to improve simulation training
3: for paramedics. And Sahej? Hi, Sahej Khalsa from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, program director at the community college here in Santa Fe.
1: And Maya Dorset, our medical director, is also a program director and medical director for, I should say, medical director for Monroe Community College in New York, and has some ideas about this workforce problem that we have. Go ahead, Maya.
4: So yeah, I'm definitely the the medical director. The program director is the one who does all the work. <laughs> but so, and really, I think this is a super important topic. And since actually, one of the educators who made me. Th- reflect on this after giving a talk is on this podcast is sahej i was hoping that he would actually speak on thinking like structurally about the impact of workforce diversity on patient care and why it's so important that educators look at their own practices
0: but hang on a sec Maya. before we do that just take us back a few weeks where we had part one because there was so much good stuff so just give us a quick potted summary of what the folk missed, why they should rewind to the previous edition of the EMS Educator podcast.
4: So on the last episode, we really focused somewhat on a more uh, granular scale of what are our practices in the classroom that either promote bias and what are some of the ways that we can work to start deconstructing unconscious bias and really making it conscious within the classroom. And really the big takeaway there is have the conversation. But we realized that, you know, There's multiple level issues here. The first is, how are we promoting those biases within the education that we provide in the classroom? But then there's the higher level issue of the fact that the EMS workforce is not very diverse. By not very, I mean, not at all. And so that is a significant issue. And as the input into that system, EMS educators have a role to play there as well. And what I'd really like to hear is Sahej discuss why this is really important as far as disparities in care that are received.
3: Yeah, thanks. It's an interesting discussion, right? To speak to the lack of diversity in in our profession, everybody should go read the work that Remley Crow and team did. From what I think it was 2008 to 2017, looking at the diversity in in the EMS workforce, and it's incredible how stable our homogeneity is, and it's incredibly problematic. What I've looked at is EMS educators, program directors, people who write policies of what it takes to get into a program. We're effectively gatekeepers to the profession. It's critical that In that role, we look at our policies to examine the impact of them, not the intent of them. We may have policies that are facially neutral, but have a biased impact. In fact, I would submit that not we may have, but we probably do. You likely, if you're an EMS educator, have policies that are intended to be neutral and are written in a neutral way, but have a biased impact.
1: Can you give an example, Sahaj?
3: Absolutely. So the, the example that immediately comes to mind is many programs have a no facial hair policy. And if you listen to the last episode, you know I'm I'm a guy with a beard, so this sounds a little bit self-serving, but I promise I don't want to go to paramedic school again, so it's not self-serving. But more importantly, there's a skin condition that affects 30 to 75 or so percent of African American men called pseudofolliculitis Barbie, which means that folks who have this skin condition can't shave. They can't do a close shave of their beard. So if you have a no facial hair policy in your program you are preemptorily excluding a large chunk of the African-American male population. Not to mention, you're also excluding a whole bunch of religious minorities. So here you have a policy that is facially neutral, no pun intended, but has a significantly biased impact. And by the way, if you read Dr. Crow's research, What you'll see is that the the populations being excluded by a policy like that are exactly the populations we need more of in our profession. And there's a ton of research out there that shows that a more diverse workforce provides more equitable care. There's also research that shows that patients who are cared for by people who look like them are more open and more willing and more trusting of those providers. And in EMS specifically, we did some research here in New Mexico, which for people who aren't aware, New Mexico is what we call a majority minority state. Um, For years, it was the only majority minority state in the country where we have a very large Hispanic population, a relatively large native population in New Mexico. And our workforce is much more diverse. So our Hispanic population in New Mexico is 47%. Our workforce is 37% Hispanic. So there's still a gap there. But when we looked at pain management in New Mexico, which we talked about on the last episode of there being a significant gap in pain management in New Mexico, that gap was closed for Hispanic patients. Now, we can't say it's because we have a more diverse workforce, right? Because New Mexico is unique in a whole number of ways in our, our culture, is largely Hispanic dominated, but we can show that there's a relationship, that a more diverse workforce leads to better care for Hispanic patients in New Mexico.
0: Thanks for that, Sir Hedge. You mentioned Dr. Remley Crow, Of course, she has been a guest on the EMS Educator podcast. And Hillary and I also hope to ambush her down at Eagles. So coming up shortly, or indeed just gone, depending on when you listen to this. So we'll have Remley back on. But let's uh, go back to you, Katie, because I think you were about to add on to Serge's point.
2: Yeah, I think Serge makes a great point about how important it is to diversify the workforce and how far we have to go. But I would argue that diversifying your classroom is like a first step, right? If we try to do this after the certification, most people are getting hired with their certifications um, or using their certifications to get hired on at fire departments. So we really need to think about how we can diversify our classrooms and not just the policies that I think are easy to pick out, right? When we think about facial hair, it's easy to pick that one out. But there's other ones that we think about with social determinants of health and how we can actually do that, like social determinants of being able to be a successful student. So Hedge and I looked at whether your address makes the grade. So literally by where you live in the zip code that you live in and the socioeconomic status of that zip code, will you be successful in school? And Not surprisingly, because we see this in a whole bunch of other education. Hillary knows it from her primary school education time, but... If they're already disadvantaged before they come in, what policies are we doing that make it harder? So are we requiring that they purchase these really expensive textbooks that half the students throw out when they're finished? Or there's going to be another edition published because American Heart made a change, so it's going to be worthless after a year? Or can we have a library of those books? Can we use open education resources? Are we requiring that everybody be on time all the time, even though it's not linked to any outcomes? So you have these policies that seem to make sense, like timeliness is a really important policy. Policy: We're going to say that if you're late once, you're in trouble. If you're late twice, you're in trouble again. Three times, you're out. Does that actually link to performance? Like if someone's late three times, does that mean they can't be a paramedic? Or does that just mean that their child was sick and they had to come up with alternative means for childcare that day? It has nothing to do with their ability to pass paramedic class that arbitrarily is starting at eight o'clock. When if you were a, you know, working in the industry, you could have sick leave, you could have family leave. Like there's other things that actually exist in the industry that would not have that strict requirement.
4: I started thinking about this within our own paramedic classrooms. And I I really started, I'd been pondering it, but then I heard Sahej give a talk as part of something called the EMS Educators Collaborative. And it made it very conscious for me. And so One of the things that we did in our own paramedic class when we had high attrition rates is we made the admission criteria for our program stricter by having an admissions exam that required sort of a certain basic level of knowledge within reading, writing, math. And this makes a lot of sense because our paramedic program in response to sort of employer feedback is a 12-month program. And we identified that students that weren't successful in the program were students who were not academically prepared for a program that is only 12 months long. And I think this is relevant because a lot of paramedic programs are going to these kinds of paradigms. And so one of the things that we did that I had been trying to do is we offer an associate's degree, but the way people tend to do it is they sort of do the paramedic program and they tack on other things, which is not the intent of a general education foundation. So we opened up a track that said, if you don't perform as well on this entrance exam, we're going to offer you that you can do general education courses through the college before to prepare you. And if you're successful in those, you'll get into the paramedic program not surprisingly, disproportionately, uh, students who sort of fell into this bucket were from underrepresented minorities who had a high school education from the, the public school district in the city, which is actually, you know, a great school district, lots of people who do well in that. But the reality is, right, like, the probability of doing well and being academically prepared is different based on the school district that you graduate from. And the big barrier there is, we had at least a couple student, and one in particular, who declined that as a pathway. And the reason that that pathway was declined is because EMS agencies will financially support students for the paramedic certificate part of the program, but they will not support them for the general education classes that will make them prepared to be successful as part of the program. And you can see right there structurally how we designed a program, a particular way to quote, meet the needs of employers. We made it so that there's increased academic requirements. And then slowly we've built this down to say, we've done a good job. We've decreased our attrition by making stricter academic requirements, but because we didn't prospectively think about the gap that was created for students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds. Right. For the students who could pay, it was not a problem. But for the students who couldn't pay, it was a problem. We've built in the disparity into the admissions into our paramedic program from the get-go. You know, and I've recently wrote a grant that just got funded that we'll be recruiting for this year for the AMR Foundation to pay for that initial year of college for two students from an underrepresented minority as a proof of principle to try and convince EMS agencies to recognize the value of paying for a year of community college for that program. And we'll see, we'll see, right? That is a change theory. I have no idea if it's going to work, but it's an idea. And I never would have thought of it if I didn't listen to Sahaj say you need to examine how your policies are affecting the diversity cuz I thought I was doing a good thing by making the stru- the requirements tighter, but I didn't think about the the repercussions of the good thing I was doing without thinking about how do I actually bridge the gap for The students who need it, and the students that I really want to be part of my program and to be providing care for my community.
3: I think that's great. I think it's it's an amazing program. We have a a requirement to get into our EMT class that you have to be able to do college level English work. For us, it's a class English 109. You have to take and pass that class to enroll in our EMT program. And there's a whole population who don't have that they struggled in high school or their high school didn't prepare them well or maybe english is a second language there's a whole host of reasons that they may have to take multiple classes to get into english 109 right and so there's this this concept that's been used across the country called ibest which stands for integrating basic education and skills training and the idea is to streamline people who aren't for whatever reason ready for college level work into a class that will get them into the workforce but it would require in a traditional setting it would require like you're talking about a year of community college that most employers don't want to pay for right and so what this class did is it took our EMT class from one semester to two our faculty co-taught with an English teacher and the English content was contextualized to EMT content and so it was the same length of time they would have taken English 109 and then the EMT in one semester but now they met the same English 109 requirements and the EMT requirements in two semesters instead of one. And we ran this as a pilot. LaGuardia Community College has done this with great success, and and Washington State has actually done a ton of work with IBES, not just in EMS. But this was a very diverse class. It was almost all underrepresented minority students from an EMS perspective, And they had a 100% success rate and a 100% pass rate on the National Registry exam, and then getting out into the field. And so for educators, look at these type of creative solutions, and then I would say be willing to do what you were willing to do, Maya, and say, this was well-intentioned, but maybe it had unanticipated consequences. So let's re-examine and let's try something different. Learning the lessons of what we just learned from our well-intentioned intervention to start with. And like we've talked about, this is a lifelong pursuit. I use Buzz Lightyear, right? it's to infinity and beyond because we're going to keep having to learn these lessons um and and making those improvements as we go forward
2: from an agency standpoint too when you're looking at like how much money does your agency pay as a bonus for people who are bilingual it if you want to bring those people in because you have a diverse community and why not pay the bonus on the front end, right? So you could just think of it and just reframe the cost in a different way. So I'm having to pay the language line or interpreters because I don't have a workforce that can speak the language of the patients in the community. Why not bring people who speak the language of the patients into the workforce and just pay that extra credit for community college upfront? So just a different way of framing the policy and where you're spending the money. It's not different. It's the same pile of money. You're just spending it differently.
1: You're spending it in a different place, like you said, pre uh, front loading. One of the lessons that we all learned during the pandemic was this idea of having grace and pivoting our practices and doing things much differently in our, not only in our didactic, but also in our practical sessions of our Of our teaching. And Katie, I wanted to ask you, because you've spoken a lot about this in various places over the last couple of years, about what you learned as an educator about trying to treat your students equally and not making assumptions about what they could and couldn't do. I know you've spoken a lot about not only training over Zoom, but also the differences that you noticed when students no longer had to commute an hour and a half in, in LA traffic to get to your facility and instead had that time at home. Speak a little bit about what types of things you're going to be taking from what you learned during the pandemic and hopefully using it to move forward and be more even more successful.
2: Great question, Hillary. I think there's so many things that I've learned just as an educator. And part of it is just like all of, I say it to everyone, I've stepped in so much Dog poop, whatever you want to call it, that I just need to let you guys know where it's at because like there's no need for everyone to have this tracked into the house. <laughs> and one of the big things is like, you know, when we're thinking about driving in traffic, I used to say, Oh, like just listen on the, the your drive and when you're stuck in traffic to the audiobook. And then someone's like, Have you ever tried to listen to this audio book? Like, you're gonna cause. Tr- like car accidents, because that woman puts you to sleep. And I was like, Oh, you know, i like, I say this, like, it's no big deal. And I've never actually listened to the audiobook And Oh, you're right. She's terrible. Like, let's not do that. Okay, so maybe find these other resources. But there's all these things. Where I'm just like, Oh, like, here's how I would do it. or Here's how I would do it. And then I'm like, Oh, but I forget, like, I don't have children. I'm like, by choice. And I think that's great. But then all of the times I've had to babysit, I'm like, oh, this is so much work. And like, I can't listen to an audiobook while I'm trying to do this with this small human running around. And so it just it made me more Um, cognizant, especially the pandemic, put it forefront of, you know, one of my students couldn't be in class because he had to go to the pharmacy because he was the only person in his family who felt safe being able to go out during a pandemic to pick up medication for the family members that were stuck at home. Right. They became the caregivers because their children's daycare were closed. And it was like, you know, some of the things that we had prior to the pandemic at UCLA was if you're on Zoom, you have to have your cameras on and you have to be present. And they're like look i can have my camera on but like i got like six cousins we all live in the same room nobody's at school because school's closed like i would prefer not to have my camera on or i actually don't have a place to live because i was living in student housing that that's closed and so now i'm in my car and i really don't feel comfortable with my camera on and all my classmates seeing that i'm using the wi-fi from mcdonald's and i was like yeah you know what i wouldn't feel comfortable either Like." There is no point if you're participating in the chat, if you're talking to me, if you are participating in all their intents and purposes, and like, you're answering all the questions correctly on the exam, just because I can't see your face, I'm going to say that you can't be a paramedic. This is ridiculous. And so most of it just didn't pass the smell test, so to speak, where I was like, none of these policies really matter to patient care. And in fact, most of them make me seem like I'm less of a caring and compassionate person. So now I'm modeling the wrong thing. This is crazy.
0: Well, here's a quick PSA from the EMS Educator podcast. If you're listening to this podcast whilst you're driving, please remember to keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. Remember also to follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. And let's just take a second to go to a message from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life.
5: Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at
0: emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. As always, thank you, Christine. And please remember to rate and review us on the platform that you are listening on. Hillary.
1: One of the things that we have been addressing here is the lack of diversity in our workforce, and it may stem a bit from our recruiting practices. And I just want to talk through some of the ways that we've watched other programs be successful in recruiting from communities where the workforce will end up looking like the patients that they're treating. One of those, of course, is the very famous Freedom House that began in Pittsburgh in the 70s, but also was rebooted recently by Dan Swayze at UPMC to bring in socioeconomically disadvantaged members of the community to be the EMTs and be trained uh, not only as EMTs, but as community health workers, which we know leads us down the path of community paramedicine and mobile integrated healthcare. I'd like to hear from our guests and, and from Maya as well about ways that we need to change our recruiting so that we are really focusing on this idea of diversifying the workforce?
2: I would say one simple thing is just look at, like Maya said, your application process. One of the ones that I changed at UCLA was they got more points for wearing a suit and tie. And I was like, you're just asking, like, how much money do you have basically with this question? Right. Um, It also has got a whole bunch of gender bias in there. So I was just like, let's just take this out. Like if they're clean, well-groomed, and they showed up on time. Those are all great things. They don't have to be wearing a suit and tie. And especially in this, you know, our industry doesn't even use that as a uniform. So kind of silly.
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a place I don't have a ton of great answers. Um, And so I'm looking for uh, answers, but I I agree with Katie is look at your recruiting materials, look at your application process, look at who you're sending your information out to, right? So as an example, if you're sending your paramedic application out and it's almost entirely going to fire departments, you're going to end up with almost entirely a male student body because that's who makes up the majority of the fire department. So, you know, just examine all of this with a critical eye and there there's evidence that Students believe they can do things when they see people looking like them doing the thing, right? So if you want a more diverse student body, you've got to keep stuff like that in mind as you go about recruiting your students.
1: That's a, a big teacher point of uh, contention, maybe not contention, but an important point for teachers who have classrooms, non-EMS teachers. But you think about what's on the walls, you think about walking into the administrative offices of an ambulance authority or an, a fire department, what is on the walls? Who who are the photos of? And does a person who is interested in the profession feel like they'd be accepted in that situation? So great point. Let, let, let
0: me tackle some of that, Hillary. because of course, as you know, I'm the recovering chief amongst us. So I, I say recovering, I'm not doing that anymore. But of course, yes, that's one of those everyday challenges of being the guy in the corner office is how do we place ourselves in the community. How do we actually interact with the community? And of course, hopefully everybody has some type of you know, community outreach, community liaison officer, first of all. That's one thing you need to be thinking about. Obviously, you know, my board was always challenging us to reflect the community in which we live within the workforce. And of course, it comes back to all the points that have just been made. So how do we do that? Well, of course, one is to make sure that you have a diverse level of folk that are interacting with the community. But also, you can run lots of programs. So we were involved with the community colleges. We were actively not just looking at the EMT school as such, but community college. We had a very, very progressive EMS academy. We actually worked with the police youth academy, the Latino youth academy, because we had an exceptionally strong Latino population. Um, And that was an interesting one in itself, because what we discovered was that uh, our Latino population were very much adverse to calling 911, because they associated 911 at the time with ICE. And so, therefore, we had to do a lot more outreach there. And, of course, the Latino Academy led to more interest, A, to encourage the community to do that, and B, to encourage people to think about a career in EMS, and also things like Explorer posts. And so there's an opportunity to run all of these programs where you can bring people in so they can see how you work, to see how they can actually imagine themselves working with you and then going back to serve their communities, no matter who they are or where they are. And certainly those were some some keys from for success from my experience, but of course, you've got to be out there, you've got to be in amongst the community, the population, and be very, very visible, and of course, very, very open. And certainly, that's my recipe for success. And so if you're listening to this in the corner office, that's some of the things, if you haven't thought of it already, add this to your to-do list. Sorry, you got me on my high horse there, sort of recovering chief corner office stuff. Sorry, back to you.
4: I was going to say, I think one of the important things is thinking about what people are doing with pipeline programs. The The keynote speaker at NAMSP was, last year was Quentin Curtis, who started the Black Fire Brigade. And, you know, I follow them on Twitter and I have to say, it's one of the the highlights to see everybody who's graduating from their program and building a career in EMS. It's people like him who are actually doing the work of transforming our workforce and thinking about what have the pipeline programs learned about what these students need to be successful, right? It's not just about saying, I have high expectations. I expect you to meet them. But really, it's how do I support you in meeting the high expectations I know that you are capable of? And The key is that it it takes support to do that. And so I don't have the answers. I haven't built this program right now. We're just trying to reflect in our area to say what actually exists, who's been successful in building more diverse programs, right? And how do we start building these pipelines? The recruitment starts pretty early, right? Like I think it's actually gonna start early on um, in things like high schools and saying, while this workforce that you look at who you see responding to 911 calls does not currently look like you that doesn't mean that is not a potential career and do you want to care for your community and how do we actually help you become a part of this workforce because we want you to be a part of it and it's that front that we present there's a huge amount of work to be done but i think it's important to recognize people like Quentin Curtis and others who are actually successfully doing doing the work that we can all learn from
1: wonderful as we Wrap up this episode, I just want to hear one more time from Katie and Sahaj with the tips that you would give program directors or EMS educators or chiefs or leaders who are running these programs for really helping our students be as successful as possible. Katie, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I would say just what Maya said, what can we do to make them successful? And let's think about how we structured things in order to make people more successful and make things easier for people. There's no reason to put a bar in place that's just arbitrary. So what time does your course start? Is it starting before the metro opens? That was what we looked at in DC. And we we're like, no, no wonder people aren't coming because the metro opens half an hour after our start Time. That's ridiculous. Let's just change it. We could just move our start time. So, there's a lot of things that I think if you look at it, like what can we do to make this program easier? It's actually easier for everyone. And by making everyone more successful, you move up those people who most need the help and assistance.
1: Sahaj?
3: So, yeah, I echo everything that's been said. And I would add look at your support services. We've had students who don't have food. And I had a student who almost lost his career because he was hungry. And there was a simple fix, which was we have a campus cupboard on campus, but like Katie talked about, the start times, the closure time didn't allow our students who took the bus to get to the campus cupboard to get food. So we now have a a satellite of the campus cupboard in our building that's there for anybody, student, faculty, staff, somebody walking through, it doesn't matter, to get some food. Taking public transit, look at your start and end times of class, as Katie said, with public transit in mind. We had to do that. We've had students who have issues with domestic violence that forced them out of their homes. So we now have information about emergency shelters in our handbook so that a student doesn't have to ask about it. And we've just gathered all of those resources, and they're freely available to all of our students. And we've had some students who've made use of them that I know of, and I not I hope, but likely some that I don't know of, who've also made use of those resources in a way that allowed them to stay in the course, and therefore in the profession.
2: As educators, especially in EMS, we have to work hand in hand with our field internship partners. And so I think one of the big things is getting information from your students about if they felt safe, if they felt included, if they felt like they belonged at the field internship spots. We've had my experiences mostly with women who were like, there was no bathroom for me to use at the station or they made me sleep in the gym because they didn't have a female bunk room, but then they were all angry at me because they wanted to work out in the gym. So just thinking about things like that, just logistical challenges of trying to diversify a workforce that isn't diverse, how do we
0: make that safe for everyone? Let's have a final thought from you, Maya, before we go for the close.
4: My final thought is uh, gratitude to everybody for having the conversation. A lot of gratitude to the people who are doing the hard work, who are teaching me how to become a better educator and be part of the difference. I think that this is a quality metric for our system. We talk about clinical quality metrics, but this is part of our quality metric as educators. And just like in quality improvement, we deconstruct the factors that lead to the adverse outcome and work to redesign the system. We need to do that to diversify our workforce and make those small changes over time that are going to get us to where we need to be.
0: Excellent, Maya. Thank you so much for that. And just uh, let's talk about some contact details. But first of all, if you were listening to the discussion a few minutes ago about the Black Fire Brigade, you can find that online at blackfirebrigade.com. But guys, you've said a lot. We obviously, there's a lot to follow here. And so how can we follow you particularly on Twitter?
3: So, Sahaj? I am on Twitter. SSK040 is my handle i don't know what it's called it is your handle now thank you and uh, katie
4: yeah you can find me on twitter at kathleen Ozio. and maya you can find me at at maya dorset i'm not particularly creative
0: <laughs> that's okay because i'm uk rob l1 and my partner in crime over there is at gates hill with one l so you can find us all on twitter guys it's been an amazing conversation it's been a two-parter it's the first time we've broken new ground in doing this we haven't done a two-parter before so Thank you for the amazing content. There's lots of stuff to to ponder on, lots of stuff to think about. And obviously we'll put some show notes in the, the description as well so we can link into some of the stuff that we've done. I'm certainly looking forward to getting the feedback from folk out there that are listening to this. As I said, you can uh, leave comments uh, for us on all the platforms that uh, you follow. That's about it for now. So, Hillary, do you want to um, take us out?
1: All I have to say is I'm proud to be a part of this profession and especially the part of the profession that has such an impact, which is EMS Education. Thank you to our guests for your strong commitment to this work. And everyone out there listening, keep up your strong commitment to
0: the good work. Wise words. So thank you to our guests, Sir Hedge and Katie. And of course, Dr. Meyer, Dr. Meyer Dorsett, MD Medical Director, MD, 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 that makes her MD3. And of course, she's been Hillary Gates. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until the next edition of the EMS Educator Podcast, bye for now.